some pencils and pens and papers up front for the younger ones who want to draw. Good morning, friends. Good to see familiar faces. Just uh, to let you know, as uh, comrades in the faith, we pray for you. Pastor Matt often mentions First Baptist Church in Ripley in prayer as he prays for different churches in the area and in Westfield itself. And uh, we feel uh, like we're just part of the family of God. Uh, so glad to be here again today. I was here in November, if you remember, if you recall. November, remember? <laughs> yeah, I do remember. I, I'm glad it's not November anymore, though. I had knee surgery in September, and it's, it's progressed much better since November, but <clears throat> uh, we began in the Gospel of John uh, in chapter 4 uh, that Sunday, but this is such a unique chapter, and there's so much that takes place in this chapter that I felt that we needed to revisit it once again. It's part of a bigger series, uh, John says toward the end of his Gospel, that these things that are written, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing in Him you might have life through His name. The Gospel of John is the Gospel of life, and it's uh, a very—I uh, I think it's one of my favorite gospels. Although they're all certainly good, but uh, John is the beloved disciple the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not that Jesus necessarily had favorites, but there just seems to be a closeness between John and Jesus that is unique. And so today I want us to begin uh, where the scripture was read this morning. After Jesus and this woman had conversed for a while, and we're going to look at revelation, confession, evangelization, and possession all of those topics this morning. And the, object, the objective is to understand and to realize the most important thing for people to hear and know. It's not a political statement. It's not uh, an educational word of wisdom. But it's something that's shared in John chapter 4 that is unique with this gospel, I think. And we need to be reminded of what the most important thing is for people to hear and know. It was many years ago that I graduated from Bible college. In May, uh, around May 10th, I think, they usually have graduation there. And I was anxious to serve the Lord now. I didn't know where, I didn't know how, I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I thought, here I am, Lord, I've completed Bible college, and I want to serve you now somewhere. And the school had given us some possibilities, some leads, but uh, this was now summertime, and I didn't have any contacts really at all. So we decided to come back to for a couple of weeks to uh, our home area in Westfield, my father-in-law had some work, and it was around the 4th of July, so we came back to visit family. And we were going to be home for several weeks, so my father-in-law was putting an addition on a house in Westfield, and he had work for me, some highly skilled work, by the way. So here I was on a warm summer July morning uh, with a pick in my hand, a pick and a shovel, those highly skilled tools, digging a trench, digging a footer for a, a small addition that we were going to put on this house. Uh, 
It was getting close to lunchtime and this car pulled up into the driveway and a man got out with a shirt and tie on and we recognized that it was the pastor of the Baptist Church there in Westfield. And Mike Peck came over to where we were working, where I was digging the ditch. And we greeted him and we talked for a few minutes. And he said, well, I, I don't want to keep you from this important work, Tom. But uh, he, had a, he had a proposal. He, uh, he wondered if I would be interested in coming back to the area and working at the church with specifically the teens, doing some music, and uh, leading the visitation program on Thursday nights and also doing some occasional preaching. And as he was sharing more of that, I thought, yes, I definitely would. But he said, you don't have to tell me now. He said, just over the course of the next week, uh, be praying about it and talk to your wife about it. And <clears throat> he said, there is one drawback. He says, the church isn't in a position to pay you anything. <laughs> well, after he left, uh, my father-in-law piped up and said, well, I have, I have quite a bit of work, and he was willing to, I'd actually worked for him at Christmas time, a small project, and he was willing to, to teach me the trade. So we did, we did that. We moved back to the area, and on uh, Sunday evenings, we had youth group. Back then, it was called BYF, Baptist Youth Fellowship, and met with the teens and planned events and took them on activities and had uh, a lesson Sunday evenings, and then did some music on Sunday mornings. And then, but then Thursday night, Thursday evenings were more of a challenge for me because I was supposed to give some kind of a lesson as people came in, and then we were to go out visiting, dividing up into twos and go out visiting. But there were a couple of challenges. One, most everybody that came out Thursday night was older than I was, and not, not just numerically, but also spiritually. At that point in my life, I'd only been a Christian for three years, and... Uh, I didn't, come, I didn't grow up in a Baptist church. Uh, I, I had a good friend who was a Baptist. but uh, So this was all new to me. Thankfully, I, got, I still had my freshman course book, Personal Evangelism 101. And so I got that book out, and we sort of used that for our textbooks on Thursday evenings. But I felt very inadequate. <laughs> Uh, I felt uh, somewhat intimidated. I, I didn't feel that comfortable speaking to groups, but the people were gracious. And we went out visiting and saw results from that. What is so amazing about John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 is the detail that John shares here of Jesus evangelizing Two people specifically. The first one we are introduced to as uh, a very religious, devout, Old Testament scholarly kind of individual called Nicodemus. The second individual here in John chapter 4, we have no name, totally different background, totally, totally different social uh, and cultural climate that this person is coming from. Two totally different individuals. But the gospel message, the good news, is presented to both Nicodemus. Nicodemus needed to hear the gospel. He needed to be born again. And the, the gospel is presented to this woman at the well. But the approach is so unique and so different. Jesus is teaching personal evangelism, the master plan. This was the master teacher. He wasn't introverted. He wasn't reluctant. He wasn't nervous. This was his whole reason for coming, is to share the good news of eternal life, the master plan, beginning an advanced program. Everything from making an initial contact to taking that person to the cross and receiving the forgiveness of sins and new life. So this morning, let's learn 
Let's sit at the master's feet as he talks with people who need salvation and what this most important thing for people to know involves. If we can go to the next slide. Let's see. Well, whoops, that's going backwards. For some reason, there we go, okay. For some reason, it's not going. If you can advance it, that's fine. So Jesus makes this remarkable revelation as they are talking. This woman has brought up the subject. She said to him as they're speaking, yeah, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When Notice this woman's insight. She wasn't completely ignorant spiritually, was she? When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And remember that this woman was not Jewish. She was a Samaritan. She was maybe half Jewish. But she says, when the Messiah comes, he's, he's going to know everything. He's going to tell us everything. And Jesus makes this remarkable, remarkable revelation. I who speak to you am the Messiah. And notice, she doesn't say, oh, really? You're kidding me. Come on now. None of that. She just believes them. I who speak to you am he. The disciples come back at this time. They're, they're marveling. They're probably talking. Hey, Peter, why, why is he talking to her? Shh, shh, don't say anything. They, they're a bit aghast that he's talking with this woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her, I always like this part, the woman left her water jar. That was the very reason that she'd come there, to get water. She leaves her water jar and goes back to uh, the community, and she, she is pumped. She is excited. She comes into the city, and she says, See a man who told me ever all that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? Jesus makes this remarkable revelation, I who speak to you am the Messiah. And this, this woman believes him and goes from there. You know, in order for salvation to take place, a savior needs to be presented. Jesus presented himself to Nicodemus and said, you need to be born anew. And then he made that famous statement to Nicodemus, for God, let's, let's say it together, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus needed to hear that. In order for salvation to take place, a Savior must be presented. It's not enough to just go to church. It's not enough to attend Sunday school class. It's not enough. When I was a young person, I had all these. You get a star first, and then every year for perfect attendance, you got a bar underneath. Well, I had a star, and I had a whole bunch of, of uh, perfect attendances after that. But at 17, 18 years old, I was as lost as could be. I didn't know the Savior. No one had actually ever sat down and presented Jesus Christ as my Savior to me. And Jesus and this woman, they talked about him being a, uh, she recognized him as a prophet. They talked about what's involved in worship. You know, you, you Jews, you worship at in one place, and we Samaritans, we worship in another place. But Jesus said, no. The, the significant thing is to worship God in spirit and in truth. And then she brings up this idea of a Messiah. Did she hope for a Messiah? Did she need a Messiah? Well, absolutely. And, and even among her peers, as a Samaritan woman, there was this expectation that a Messiah would come and be their rescue, and be their deliverer. 
the Christ, Christos, the anointed one. Who would he be anointed by? Well, God the Father. He would be the one sent from God the Father to be the savior of the world that people needed. And they talked about all, all different kinds of things. Ordained by God. Theologically, as one scholar writes, Christos is used to signify the one who, by his Holy Spirit and power, indwells the believers and molds their character in conformity to his likeness. From Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament scriptures are full of hope and promise that a redeemer, a deliverer, would someday come. A Messiah who would, who would one day come and visit his people. Hundreds of years of waiting. And yet, finally, this revelation is astounding. As Jesus says, I am he. And the woman believed him. So the woman makes a convincing confession. She leaves her water pot, goes into town, all excited, and says, Come and see a man who told me all that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? I noticed something that I'd never seen before, though I'd read this scripture over and over again. When she went into the town, she left her water pot, and she went into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me ever all that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And, <coughs> and she, she, she made it known to the men of the community that this man, Jesus, that this Messiah was out there. Now just imagine for a minute, though, this woman of questionable character. She'd had five husbands. The man she was living with was not her husband. Jesus dealt with that. She comes excitedly into the marketplace, people buying and selling and purchasing things and carrying bundles, and excitedly, excitedly says, hey, who do you think that she went to first? She probably went to her live-in partner and got him and says, come, you've got to meet this guy. You've got to see this guy that's out to Jacob's well. When she first came to the well, she referred to him as a Jew. How is it that you, being a Jew, speak to me, a woman of Samaria? She refers to him as a Jew. And then as the discussion progresses, it's sir. And then she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she calls him the Christ. And the people came. And the people came. That was what was most amazing. Come see this man who's told me all that ever I did. Can this person be the Christ? And they did come, and they listened to him. But in order for salvation to take place, not only must a Savior be presented, but self must be exposed. Sin needs to be dealt with. If there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no salvation of a soul. And Jesus presented her true self to her. And she cannot argue with Jesus' disclosure of her life. Yes, she, she knew guilt. But from this man, she accepted it because this was someone that could do something about it. The, the Savior, Jesus never exposes for the purpose of ridicule or condemnation, but rather to bring a person to repentance of that sin. The Holy Spirit never convicts us to press, press us down and keep us under guilt and the weight of that sin, but rather he produces, wants to produce uh, repentance from our heart. And he offers payment on the cross for that sin. Romans 2.4 says that it's the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. God's goodness, God's kindness. 
leads us to repentance. John MacArthur says, anyone in a Jewish context knows that the preparation for the coming of Messiah was the purging of the heart of its sinfulness. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher, said, this is an amazing quote by Spurgeon. Of course, most everything he said was amazing. But he says, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. You and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one sin, he said, may you keep. They must all be given up. There it is. Thank you. They must all be given up. So Jesus makes this remarkable revelation. The woman makes a conv convincing confession, and this, the disciples go on to experience evangelize, evangelize, uh, evangelization. Here we go. And the people came. And, and as they came, well, before they came, after the woman left, the, the, the disciples had gone to town. What were they doing? They were getting food. They were bringing it back. They'd been on a journey. Jesus was at the well. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. So as the woman left, they said, Master, they made preparations. They set up camp. They got the table, a table of sorts out there. They set the food out. Master, have something to eat. They urged Jesus to eat. And what did Jesus say to them? I have food to eat that you know not about. And they said to them, themselves, did somebody bring you food while we were in town buying food? What, what, what do you mean? You, you've already eaten? Jesus said, no. My food, my sustenance, what feeds me is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then he goes into this evangelistic uh, speech. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And one commentator said, perhaps by this time, the woman had gone into Sychar, and there were a number of people that were following her, and they were actually coming to Jesus with grain fields in the backdrop. And so as Jesus was saying this, look, the fields are white already to harvest. Don't say four months and then comes the harvest. They're white already. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds, one sows and another reaps. But Jesus said, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And what they were about to experience was the results of some other people laboring. Because here they were about a mile from town out in the middle of nowhere at Jacob's Well, and people were coming to them. And these were people who were hungry spiritually. These were people who were open to Jesus. These were people that wanted to meet this one who could possibly be the Messiah. Think of the disciples, what they were about to see, what they were about to hear, what they were about to watch as the, the master, the master in evangelism, was going to reach many people, the Bible says. And Jesus, Jesus was the teacher here, and they were the students, and they were going to take this all in. And later on, he was going to send them out two by two. And they were going to do signs and wonders and see evangelism taking place. But I don't think it, they ever forgot what happened in Samaria at, at uh, Sychar, at Jacob's Well. Because it wasn't just a, a, a very limited situation. In fact, we, we read that Jesus ended up staying there for two days. Someone has said, 
that all of life concentrates on man at the crossroads. Life becomes a matter of constant decision-making. The woman at the well made a decision. She heard Jesus say, I who speak to you am the Messiah. She believed him. She went into town and she talked to people who made a decision that day. What was so unique about this was that how, how often do we, we read that Jesus went into this area or this community or this city and the people rejected him? They mocked him. They laughed at him. They ridiculed him. You're the, he just said that he was the son of man. Nobody can make that claim. That's blasphemy. They didn't believe him. See, in John chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But, but, to as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. So here we have Samaritans. Think of all the lessons that Jesus is teaching through this. He's speaking to a questionable woman. He's in Samaria, uh, despised by many of the Jewish people. He himself is tired and weary and hungry, yet that all takes second place to what's most important here. He says, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish that. While others ridiculed and criticized him, all of these Samaritans were coming out to hear him. And so we see the Samaritans, we move from this, the disciples experiencing evangelism to them being right in the very heart of it. All of a sudden, all these people came. The Samaritans claim a personal possession. See what it says here. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor, it says in verse 38. And many, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now that's, that's startling because, I'm sorry, in this day, in this time, a woman's testimony was not really very significant. They had so little opportunities. There was no equal, equal rights in that day. But many of them did believe because of the woman's testimony. She was so convincing. They knew what she was, and they saw the excitement in her face, and they, they, they confessed that something's happened to this lady. Something's different in her life. And many of them believed because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that ever I did. Now that, that shouldn't be something that you'd want to brag about. This woman had a sordid past. But because this was someone who knew her past and could do something about it and heal her spiritually and save her soul, that was significant. But notice what it says past that. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What an, what an astounding statement for the Samaritans to make. A group of them that he was indeed the long-awaited Messiah, is their testimony. No more Jew-Samaritan issue. No more you and us. No more racial or cultural distinctions. We, we believe and we are convinced that you are the Savior of the world. And it says that First of all, many Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony, and many more believed. So, question. How many people, how many people do you think from Sychar came out from the, the community 
and believed. Because the Bible says that they urged Jesus to stay. They wanted more. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to see more. They wanted to listen more. And Jesus ended up staying there for two days. Now, they had no motels for them to be housed in. They had no fast food restaurants for them to eat at. So the disciples would have just, if you've seen any of the chosen episodes, you begin to realize that as Jesus traveled with his disciples, they lived in the wilderness often. They camped by the, a, creek, a, creek, a creek, a river, a small pond or a lake. They got their water from there. They had to buy food. There was no fast food. Everything was, you know, you had to prepare the meat and the food and the vegetables, and it was a process. And they stayed there for two days, and people came, and maybe people from Sychar stayed and spent the night with the disciples and just stayed up at night by the, by the fireside talking with them and talking with Jesus. Imagine those opportunities that they had to spend time like that with Jesus. They didn't want him to leave. They wanted him to stay. We know that you are the Savior of the world. And so for, in order for salvation to take place, the Savior must be presented, sin must be dealt with, but acceptance must be proclaimed. And they make this statement. We no longer believe just because of the woman's testimony. For we have heard, we've heard for ourselves from your mouth, and we know that you are indeed the Savior of the world. In order for salvation to take place, acceptance must be proclaimed. A person is not saved. I wanted to go back, I guess. No, I guess I, guess I had that here. Uh, note, a person is not saved just because they say they're saved. But if they're saved, they have no problem saying it. Okay. That's what baptism is. Baptism, baptism is a confession that I have received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And usually before that person is officially dipped in the water, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection, they make a confession. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I accept him in my life. So then in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you, my brother or sister. Uh, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And they confess this. Romans 10.9 says, But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I hope you've done that. And if by chance there's someone in here today that have, has never done that, you've never, act, you've never confessed, you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart and be your Savior, you can do that today. You can do that right now. You can do that as we close in prayer, if you've never done that. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the, of the Father, we too might walk in newness of, of life, Paul wrote. One noted theologian wrote, this is kind of hard to follow, just, but, but it, it's, it's rich. Just because Christ is born, we have to regard the world as lost in the sight of God for unless the entire world of man is hopelessly mired in the depths of a predicament from which there's no possible escape or salvation, then it is really unnecessary for a savior of the world to come into the world. Unless we are hopelessly lost, we don't need a savior. But we are hopelessly lost, and a savior came. Thank God. Uh, Luke wrote this, For the Son of Man has come 
to seek and to save that which was lost. We were lost, and Jesus found us. So John gives us this wonderful report. John gives us that there was a great harvest. The very thing that Jesus had explained to his disciples just before it was going to happen, happened. Many, many Samaritans from that town believed from the woman's testimony, and then many additional ones, as Jesus stayed there two days, they believed because of his own words. And they, they simply said, we have heard, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So what's the most important thing for a person to hear and know? That the Messiah is the Savior of the world. And, and you can know him. Yes, there was revelation. There was confession. There was evangelization took place. And praise God, there was possession. Those people, those people were never the same. That woman at that well, we don't know what happened to her. We don't know her if her and the man that she was living with all of a sudden decided to get married. But their, their lives were never the same. And that's what Jesus does. I look at this as a two-day maternity clinic. Think of how many births there were at Jacob's well. Lord, thank you for coming to our earth, for inhabiting our planet, for walking our streets, for eating our food, for living among us, to become the savior of the world. We didn't realize how lost we were until one day somebody shared that we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so if there's one in here today that has never realize that, never accepted Jesus into their life. We pray that that one right now would pray something like this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for my sin. I now receive him into my heart as my Savior. Thank you for coming to our world to die for our sins. Jesus, amen. Um, you can turn in your hymnals to 517. I am resolved, 517. <clears throat>
something else you often see as we take communion is that uh, oftentimes Don or Claude or anyone would be uh, serving the deacons as well. And what it does is it shows everybody's serving everybody. The pastor serves, we serve you. Uh, they would oftentimes, uh, at the end, somebody stands up and serves Don as well. But why did they do that? It's just not something you have to do rigidly. It's just another way to say we're each serving one another at this time. So again, for at least for my kids, just to tell my own kids, hey, this is why we do what we do. It's not arbitrary. It's thoughtful. And uh, it's been done this way for a long time as well. So as you take this together, we're remembering the Lord's death until he comes. And oftentimes it's been said that when somebody made a covenant, the covenant was life-threatening. If you did not fulfill your end of the covenant, you paid with your blood and your body. And what Christ is saying here is it's my blood that is shed for this covenant. And it's him who dies. You should be the one that dies. You have not fulfilled your end of the bargain, but it's Christ who dies. And that is what we remember as well, is that it is Christ who sacrificed. His blood for us. Then Jesus, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. So let's sing a hymn together. We'll sing now the first verse of Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was
Thank God. How many more treatments do you think you have? Three? Well, we'll pray they go well. Oh, okay. Time for spring. Yeah. She she had a she had a wig for a while. <laughs> so better better give him all this stuff back. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Yeah. No. Always just 